0: Chapter 31 of A History of Astronomy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant, Chapter 31 Clusters, Nebulae, Milky Way The history of research among clusters and nebulae is to a great extent that of improvements in photography. It is impossible to dwell in any great detail on the manifold varieties among the thousands of objects indexed in Dreyer's General Catalogue of Nebulae and Clusters, enlarged and revised from that of Sir John Herschel, and continuing with supplement nearly double the number of Herschel's 5,000, indicating the progress in 30 years from the publication of the one in 1864 to the completion of the other with its supplement, between 1888 and 1894 the herschels considered nebulae a distinct class but the earl of ross in the heyday of his great parsonstown reflector resolved so many apparent nebulae into clusters that an opinion gained very general support that all nebulae could be similarly resolved the year of publication of herschel's catalogue saw the vindication of their older theory for huggins then turned his spectroscope towards the nebula and found instant evidence from its bright-line spectrum that it was no group of stars, but a mass of incandescent gases, which appeared to him to be hydrogen and nitrogen. Many other nebulae gave similar results, though the line attributed by him to hydrogen and by Lockyer to magnesium had ultimately proved to belong to an unknown substance, to which the name nebulium was given, just as helium had been assigned to the chromospheric substance responsible for the D3 sub line. In many nebulae, the gas may be under pressure, as they show a continuous spectrum, or they may, after all, be more similar to clusters, many of which also yield a continuous spectrum. Helium itself is found in some of the nebulae. Clusters seem to suggest universes in being, just as nebulae may be taken to represent them in the making. But there is a marked difference between such a group as the Pleiades, in many ways the most remarkable collection of stars in the sky, and the globular cluster of which Omega Centauri is an excellent example, the Pleiades, whose rising and setting ruled the agricultural calendar of several distinct primitive nations and which have been by others taken to be the abode of the gods and more recently regarded as possibly the centre of the universe, the brightest star Alcyone has been suggested as the central sun, are certainly an irregular cluster. Bessel's triangulation of the group eighteen twenty nine to eighteen forty one repeated by Gould a quarter century later from a photograph by Rutherford and very carefully by Elkin at Yale in 1884 and 85, shows that of the 50 brightest stars in the group, only six do not appear physically connected with it. The rest have a common apparent proper motion, almost entirely due to the motion of the sun in space, and are consequently inferred to be at a vast distance from the Earth, so that every one of the 40-odd stars is brighter than the sun, and the brightest of them probably 170 times as bright. Subsequent estimations by Pickering and Stratonoff now show that not only six stars above differentiated, but most of the fainter stars also are at an enormously greater distance and do not belong to the system. It is impossible to obtain just appreciation of the conditions in such a system as compared with our own, the dimensions being out of all proportion. Possibly, the feature best worth recording is the extraordinary ramifications of nebulosity, in which the stars seem to be involved, the detection of which is one of the triumphs of celestial photography. Some faint indications of a globular form have been claimed even for the Pleiades, but it is unmistakable in Omega Centauri, other clusters appearing elliptical, triangular, or fan-shaped, and many groups of the stars in clusters showing apparently closer physical connection, in some cases like bees on a string of nebulosity. In an area around Omega Centauri, less than twice that covered by the full moon, more than 6,000 stars have been photographed, of which three-quarter appeared to belong to the system and 125 to be variable. A much smaller cluster, 47 to shows even more stars. Moreover, as a rule, the arrangement of stars in a cluster does not seem to be quite haphazard. For instance, in some, the brighter stars seem to represent crooked spokes, while the fainter ones crowd into the center. It seems very possible that clusters represent condensation from nebula. Globular clusters show no true nebulosity. The Pleiades may correspond to one intermediate stage and various other forms to other stages. Perhaps someday the spectroscope may enlighten us further as to the possible processes of evolution. Meanwhile, the nebulae themselves show numerous gradations. The first catalogue of nebulous objects, many of them clusters beyond the resolving power then available, were produced in 1781 by Messier, the ferret of comets, of Louis XV, who hoped for providing a list of such spurious comets to save himself some proportion of his frequent disappointments. The very names of many of the better-known nebulae, the Ring Nebula in Lyra, the Crab, the Dumbbell, the Keyhole, the Fishmouth, the Spider, the American Nebula in Cygnus, and the Whirlpool Messier 51 in Canis Vernatici, indicate greater diversities of apparent shape, but other differences are more important. Nebulous stars, surrounded by a sort of glow of nebulosity, may be only prospective variants of stars of nebulous appendages of various forms, and at least one of Herschel's nebulous stars is really a close spiral. Planetary nebulae, whose uniform brightness almost persuaded Herschel to discard them, have generally stellar nuclei also, and one of them betrays a sort of spiral form. In fact, almost every kind of nebulae seems to hint at some stage of the same development. Apart from photography, the amount of work done in recent years is not great. Louis Swift, a well-known comet discoverer, devoted a considerable time to the successful search for new nebulae, and G. Biggeordon of the Paris Observatory has performed a very troublesome task in determining accurately the positions of hundreds of these objects, publishing a catalog of nebulae and clusters in 1899. Since 1880, when Draper photographed the Orion Nebula, many refracting telescopes, whose special advantages for the recording of faint nebulosity render them much more suitable for the purpose than refractors, have been employed in similar work. In 1883, Dr. A. A. Common of Ealing obtained with his very large reflector a very fine photograph of the Orion Nebula, for which he received the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society. In 1885, Dr. Isaac Roberts began to devote himself to the task and by the end of the century, had published two volumes of splendid photographs also receiving the gold medal. Max Wolf at Heidelberg and Bernard and W.H. Prickering in America worked in this same field, the former publishing in 1902 a catalogue of about 1,500 nebulae north of the Milky Way. The most striking success was achieved by Keeler with the Crossley Reflector at the Lick Observatory. This was a three-foot instrument made by Calver for Dr. Common from whom it was purchased by mr crossley a yorkshire merchant who finding the atmosphere of Halifax quite unsuitable for so large an instrument presented it to the lick observatory where it was for some time almost ignored one and another finding it unsuitable for various purposes on the appointment of j e keeler to the directorship in eighteen ninety eight he at once justified his election by undertaking the work himself with the despised instrument over which friction had arisen and with rare intuition devoted it to nebular photography with such success that in the two years left to him, he died in 1900, he not only found nebulae so thickly strewn in his photographs that he estimated the number in the sky, within reach of his instrument, at about 20 times the number already known, inferring a total exceeding 100,000. Half a million has since been suggested by Professor Perrine, but also came to the conclusion that at least half of them are spiral and from this produced the germ of the planetesimal hypothesis. This idea, to which reference has already been made, does not concern itself with the genesis of nebulae from the protoplasmal material by condensation of gases or collisions of meteoric dust, but does endeavor to generalize the subsequent development of all nebulae in a manner not at variance with a plausible history of the evolution of the solar system from its supposed primitive nebula. Professor F. R. Moulton starts afresh from the mathematical point of view with a more or less spheroidal nebula, rejecting as necessary Laplace's assumed high temperature, in the light of modern researches into the mechanical production of heat and conservation of energy. Two such bodies in rotation traversing paths approaching near to each other will be subjected to powerful tidal effects, whose effect will be to elongate them towards and from each other, and the suddenness of the strain on the bodies loosely coherent might readily cause disruption of a portion at the end of a diameter. The relatively lower velocity of these fragments will cause them to leave the parent body in a spiral direction, dragging after them wisps of uncondensed material. The continuation of this process, so long as the bodies are near enough together, is supposed to ultimately leave a central nebula with spiral arms knotted at regular intervals with more condensed masses, all rotating and gathering up the remnants of nebulosity. The evolution from this of a globular cluster differs only in dimensions from that suggested by Moulton and Chamberlain for the solar system. We cannot yet refer to all systems apparent in the sky to stages in this hypothesis, which is sufficiently suggestive to meet with provisional approval. It may be that the more condensed planetary nebulae have been too solitary to conform to pattern, and the double stars represent cases where approach has been too near to allow of recession. It may be that the nebulosity round Nova Persei is an imperfect sketch, showing the spiral form in non-luminous matter, revealed in some way by the light change in the central condensation. There is plenty of scope for interesting speculation in the attempt to harmonize every apparently unique phenomenon with the resistless workings of a universal law. But the hypothesis has not reached the status of Newton's law of gravitation and may, after all, meet the fate of his dynamical theory of light. The source of the original energy is yet to seek through physical research into the possibilities of radioactivity may supply a clue. The Milky Way, stretching with hardly a break all around the heavens, though for some distances divided into two branches, suggests an obvious plane of reference in celestial distribution. And one of the first theories of the universe, the grindstone theory of Thomas Wright of Durham, 1750, assumes that the condensation of stars in that region indicates the shape of the universe. Our system being supposed to lie in the interior of a disc-like aggregation of separate bodies, which naturally appear more thickly strewn in the plane of the disc. Kant's idea involved the plurality of such systems, regarding Nebulae as island universes, each with its own Milky Way. Newcomb's counting of stars in various regions pointed to the result that the fainter the stars considered, the greater is their crowding in the Milky Way compared with the rest of the sky. Moreover. Gaseous nebulae, novae, and stars of certain spectral types, in general, the more photographically bright stars, appear more frequently in the Milky Way than elsewhere. The conclusion that the galactic plane denotes the direction of greatest extension of our universe is almost inevitable. At the same time, analysis to proper motions suggests to A.S. Eddington at least two distinct universes, so to speak, moving in different directions. A similar idea appeared before in the guise of a suggestion from Gill and Caption that the brighter stars as a whole showed rotation with regard to the fainter ones, but it apparently broke down under further analysis. It is difficult to reconcile our ideas of gravitation with interlacing and yet independent motions, but suggestions have been thrown out to the effect that such systems might persist at different distances, so that one moved wholly within the other in a manner analogous with the idea of rotation of the brighter stars, still presumed in the mean to be the nearer stars. Or again, it is hinted, The case may be met by assuming for our system a position well outside the center of a single universe, so that a fair proportion of its members, by virtue of their position, like planets at the inferior conjunction, would appear to be moving in a different direction to the rest. End of chapter 31